from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. He wanted to be remembered as Tennessee Williams, not Tom Williams. Tom was associated with a landlocked Midwest. Our association with Williams as a writer of the Deep South, but also as a writer of pure lyricism, is in some ways mitigated by the St. Louis plays, which are socially aware and socially conscious. He deals with poverty, he deals with homelessness, he deals with addiction, he deals with men in prison. And his entire life was a struggle against being confined. And confinement, uh, geographically and spiritually and sexually, were the things that William spent his life fighting against. I'm Sarah Fenske. Tennessee Williams' tortured relationship with St. Louis is well known. The man born Thomas Lanier Williams moved here at age eight. He hated it, and his unhappy years here inspired what's arguably his most beloved play, The Glass Menagerie. By the time it premiered on Broadway, he'd fled St. Louis, and he only returned under duress and in death. That brief recounting is accurate enough, but a new book argues that those bare details obscure the true impact of St. Louis on William's life and work. Henry Schwey is a professor of drama and comparative literature at Washington University. His new book is Blue Song, St. Louis in the Life and Work of Tennessee Williams, and he joins us today. So Henry Schwey, welcome. Thank you for having me, especially your first day back from vacation. It is very exciting, and I'm glad that they've brought me back with a topic that I am genuinely excited to talk about. I just, I enjoyed this book so much. And this book reminded me that Tennessee Williams' hatred of St. Louis sometimes eclipses a critical fact that he lived here longer than anywhere else. That began at age eight. What brought the Williams clan to St. Louis? I was just thinking when you were announcing the weather a moment ago that it was on a day just like this in mid-July hmm. that the Williams family, uh, Williams family, it was really only his mother, Edwina, and himself, traveled by train and got off at Union Station, very close to where we are now, and so started the kind of intense drama, um, some would call it a tragic drama, of Williams, of Williams' life here. But that's how it started. Their father, uh, Cornelius had already moved here in advance to start up his job at International Shoe. And that's a, a big St. Louis uh, shoe manufacturer. He was a salesman for them? He was in management, actually. He had been a traveling salesman, but he was a manager of a particular branch of the shoe company. And uh, so they, it was a promotion for him. It was not a promotion in terms of their family life because it meant that they left the kind of uh, bucolic scene in Mississippi for um, a scene in which the family was all crowded together. And you make an argument in this book that part of why he hated St. Louis so much is this is really the first time that his dad was around all the time, and that was a real problem. 
That's absolutely uh, pivotal in terms of understanding this kind of dynamic of the Williams clan. Uh, the tension, the anger had been diffused both by uh, Cornelius's uh, absence. He was a traveling salesman. Those of your listeners who know the Glass Menagerie uh, know that he's characterized as a, a telephone man who fell in love with long distance. But in fact, in life, not in the theater, in life, he was very much a part of their lives during those St. Louis years. And that meant a very tense and disturbing reality because he was he was very difficult to live with. He was an alcoholic. He was abusive. Um, he was particularly abusive to Tom, but also to his wife. Um, and he and he lived a kind of life that was, in some ways, outrageous. The most outrageous element really comes uh, later. Uh, but he had his ear bitten off in a poker game. Um, that just is is the kind of flavor that he brought to the family. And I think it's easy to see, even though Streetcar Named Desire is not a St. Louis play, it's the quintessential New Orleans play, just as Glass Menagerie is the St. Louis play. But where Williams got some of the anger and the sense of toxic masculinity in his life, hmm. he got it from his father. I also wonder about just the crowded apartment, which is such a feature in both of those plays. This is something that after being in the countryside, having this this comfortable home, they're now all squished together and just getting on each other's nerves. That's a very acute comment, and it's absolutely true. The move from this sort of rural environment where he and his sister were the sort of favored darling grandchildren of the rector, Walter Dakin, suddenly they were in a rooming house and uh, in the Central West End. And so, yes, I think the proximity, the fact that they couldn't escape um, one another uh, was a crucial factor. And I think, you know, claustrophobia is an often a very effective device in drama. Um, but in this case, and certainly in, in Glass Menagerie and in Streetcar, um, the fact that the characters can't escape one another, you know, that, that Blanche can't escape Stanley. Mm -hmm. There's just a, a, a curtain uh, between their bedrooms. Or in Glass Menagerie, um, it, the audience can look at the opening stage directions for Glass Menagerie, and he, re he calls it a sort of warty hive of of uh, inhabitants living there together on one another, almost this kind of, um, I don't know, reminds me of a kind of insect life. It's mm -hmm. certainly tenement life. Uh, that was somewhat different from the way that the Williams, uh, Williams has experienced it. But nonetheless, that was the artistic milieu he was creating. And not just that his father was this, this sort of violent, as you say, toxic, masculine presence. His mother was also a real character, of course, you know, the, the model for Amanda in The Glass Menagerie. But part of, of her character that I hadn't really thought about until this great quote that you found from a friend of, of Tennessee's, this was from his memoir, the poet William J. Smith, he said the Tennessee Williams mother, quote, never stopped talking. I had to think about what that would be like to be in close quarters to someone like that. It seems like it would just drive a person crazy. Absolutely. I think that his mother was, if, if you like, even more toxic than his father. Mm. Um, in some ways, at least he could escape his father uh, through writing, through work. His mother was in the house, always there, and in some ways she performed this kind of, and performed is a good word, she was, 
she lived a life of performance. The other quote that Bill Smith, who, by the way, just recently died after writing this wonderful memoir about uh, about my friend Tom, is he compared Amanda's voice to a game of Chinese checkers Ooh. where the ball hits and – I mean, it's – apparently she would never stop. So you can see why there's so much angst in Tennessee Williams' work. But you also make a point in this book um, that St. Louis shaped him in some good ways. And one of those things was through, you say, it's excellent public schools. Now, this may be news for some younger listeners. Were the schools here particularly good during the era that he would have been attending them? Yes, they were. They were really innovative and they um, they emphasized citizenship and and really a kind of awareness of the wider world. And these are things that he simply would not have had access to uh, in Clarksdale, Mississippi. With all due respect to that world, St. Louis gave him many things, and they're not necessarily things that he would have acknowledged. Mm -hmm. But going to Ben Blewett Junior High School, going to University City High School, um, he was never a good student, but he accomplished things particularly in the area of writing, um, that were unusual. And, you know, he got work published while he was in high school. He, you know, so all of these things expanded his horizons. And then when he got to Washington University, um, eventually uh, things went even further. But the time in St. Louis, uh, including University of Missouri, Columbia, um, were steps forward for him, things that he would never have accomplished had he remained in the Deep South. So you really delve into these collegiate years. And I got to say, everything I've read about Tennessee Williams over the years, I did not even know that he went to Washington University. And it turns out I am not alone in that. This is something that, as you point out, he didn't even mention in his own memoirs. Why was that? Well, I think because he left unhappily. He, he left under very difficult circumstances. Uh, as I recount in the book, he, he finished fourth in, uh, in um, a playwriting competition uh, and, in fact, received honorable mention. He was then 26 years old, had written several produced plays, and he was using that, that um, prize or the prospect of the prize to really establishes himself at home and vindicate his going back to school at 26 and argue to his father, really, that he wasn't simply a waste of space. So it was devastating. He also flunked Greek, as I mentioned. And so these things conspired to make him feel really unhappy. And his his colleague, if you like, the editor, uh, Shepard Mead, who later wrote the, the text for uh, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, uh, chides Williams, it says, about his memoir, he was so frank and so forthcoming about almost everything, including his homosexuality, but he never fessed up to having gone to Washington University, the deepest of dark secrets. And when Dakin Williams advised us on a conference we did in 2004 and 5 uh, about the Washington University years, he suggested, Dakin suggested we call it the secret year. Hmm. That's interesting. And Dakin, of course, was his brother. So I got to ask, you know, in this book, you went back and read so many of his early plays and dug into the writing he was doing. And this fourth place finish, this was such a catastrophe in his life. Was he robbed? Or was this not a play that showed the future genius? Both. 
The answer is both, as it's more complicated than that. The play, taken at face value, is very melodramatic. It's about an armaments manufacturer who is controlling both sides in a fictional conflict. You could say it indicates a genius moving in a different direction. That is, Tennessee Williams, Tom Williams' awareness of political affairs, of world affairs, because it's in some ways it anticipates that. But the play is melodramatic, and apparently the students in the class laughed at it or used the time to prepare their homework for the next class. On the other hand, and this is really significant, it is in the the this armaments manufacturer's wife is a is a princess. And in that uh, portrait, we'll, we get the first inclination of William's great stylistic proclivity to depict um, madness and uh, fragility, uh, feminine, particularly feminine fragility. And this woman who, in the end, shoots her husband. Sorry for the, uh, for the spoiler alert. Uh, not many of your listeners are going to be listening to watching Me Vasha, which is now published. But, um, but it's also an account of her nervous breakdown written at the very time that his sister Rose was institutionalized. Mm. So the play had great significance for Williams personally, but obviously the other students in the class could not have absorbed that, nor did they understand that the play was written as a kind of fantasy. Mm-hmm. It wasn't and meant to be realistic. It was not meant to be realistic. And I'm sure that they took it as a pretentious bit of melodrama. One of his colleagues at the time, uh, the great writer A.E. Hotchner, mentioned to me that uh, Williams had kept bringing in excerpts from his family during that one-act playwriting class. And he was shocked th- to find that that Mi Vasha was the thing that he actually entered for the contest. Because he had other pieces that, that showed more promise. Yes. Well, Williams was addicted to writing. I mm. mean, even then, he was addicted to writing. That was during the years of his literary factory with William J. Smith and Clark Mills. And he, he wrote all the time. Writing was an escape for him. Mm. Our guest today is Henry Chevet. He's a professor of drama and comparative literature at Washington University. And his new book is Blue Song, St. Louis in the Life and Work of Tennessee Williams. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. And now back to our conversation. Our guest today is Henry Schwey. He's a professor of drama and comparative literature at Washington University. And his new book, which I really enjoyed reading and I'm definitely enjoying talking about, is Blue Song, St. Louis in the Life and Work of Tennessee Williams. So, Henry, we were talking a bit about his time at Wash U and then the University of Missouri, uh, Columbia. But your book really um, uh, fleshes out something that, that many of us may not have known about that really helped to launch him as a playwright. And and this is his work with a theater troupe in Webster Groves known as the Mummers. How did he first connect with them? Um, the answer to that is very ironic because it was his mother 
<laughs> Chinese checkers uh, speaking mother who saw an ad at the uh, in the Webster in Webster Groves for a playwriting contest, and she brought it to the attention of his son, and he contacted. Uh, this gentleman who was apparently extremely charismatic named Willard Holland. And um, they needed a curtain raiser for Irwin Shaw's play, Bury the Dead. And Williams wrote something, and that started a kind of engagement, artistic engagement, that was huge in terms of Williams' life and in terms of his writing because he, he started writing these plays for large casts, I mean, it was the perfect apprenticeship, even though, I, as you know from the book, I disagree with the idea that these are apprentice plays, pure and simple. But he wrote plays, Candles to the Sun, plays that people don't know about, not, uh, not about nightingales. Uh, uh, it's just play after play with casts of 25 and up, Fugitive Kind, which is set in St. Louis, at Christmas time, interestingly enough, even though he wrote it during the summer. Hmm. Um, so it was that meeting with Willard Holland, and in an essay written in the 40s after he had become famous, he writes that they were the childhood of my youth. So they were, his artistic apprenticeship was done at the Mummers, and this gentleman, Will, Willard Holland, would also act in the plays. Uh, so it's, it's, it was a very exciting kind of marriage that dissolved, sadly. Uh, Holland went to L.A. for screen tests and, uh, and uh, didn't resume his directorship of the, of the Mummers. But they performed at the Wednesday Club in the Central West End, not the current location of the Wednesday Club, uh, in a rented, a rented space. And, in fact, there's going to be a discussion of the Mummers um, in August next month uh, with the St. Louis uh, Festival, uh, including myself and Tom Mitchell, who has written on on this period as well. And so they're finally getting some credit for the role they played um, in, in shaping his work and, and launching him, really, as a playwright. Absolutely, and launching it in a way that's different than people expect, because one of the things that I think that the book points out is that our association with Williams as a writer of the Deep South, but also as a writer of pure lyricism, is in some ways mitigated by these St. Louis plays, which are socially aware and socially conscious. He deals with poverty. He deals with homelessness. He deals with addiction. He deals with men in prison in Not About Nightingales, one of the most uh, striking political plays. And these plays were all lost until 60 years later. So it's no wonder that people don't necessarily associate Williams with this kind of political writing. But that's, that's what he was doing because of the agenda of the Mummers. Their job, unlike the little theater movement, was not simply to create plays that were pleasant, but to give audiences a punch in the solar plexus. Mm -hmm. So it was an avant-garde, not professional, but it was an avant-garde community theater. And all happening in Webster Groves. I mean, it's kind of amazing to think that these audiences would be seeing, as, as you feel, these are these are some good plays. Tennessee Williams um, sort of beginning to make his name. Yes, absolutely. And I think that so this was right here in St. Louis, not even even closer to this station than than Webster Groves. Uh, this was at you know on Westminster. I mean, it was just 
really, really close to home. And I think William's talent was forged by his apprenticeship to Willard Holland and the Mummers troupe. And yet he ended up having um, just famously just terrible feelings about St. Louis. Didn't say very many good things about us after he left. And that's why I think there's the, the great irony that he ends up back here. He ends up buried here when this was against his express wishes. Why was it that he ended up back in St. Louis in death when this is something he desperately wanted to avoid? Well, the most um, Williams expressed a very fervent desire to be buried at sea and to have his ashes spread in, at the sea in the place closest to where his poetic inspiration, Hart Crane, committed suicide. And he wanted, uh, he had very particular notions about it. It was to be a, a fishing vessel. He wanted it to set sail from a certain place. And, of course, that place is uh, Key West in particular is associated with Williams um, because he wanted to be remembered as Tennessee Williams, not Tom Williams. Tom was associated with a landlocked Midwest. He wanted that kind of freedom. And his entire life was a struggle against being confined. And confinement uh, geographically and spiritually and sexually were the things that William spent his life fighting against in the form of his mother in particular. She was very puritanical and uh, abhorred touch in any sense, not very maternal in that way. And um, Williams wanted to leave. I remember sitting in the audience uh, the first year of the St. Louis uh, Tennessee Williams Festival and hearing somebody uh, say, yes, but he didn't like it here in response to the fact that Williams was from St. Louis. And I think that that has been the point of view. And I'm not contradicting that point of view. I'm just trying to deepen our understanding of it. Because St. Louis was with him, just as our hometown Cleveland is with you, whether you like it or not, Sarah. Oh, and um, I, I do not like it. But yes, I mean, your point is taken. I can, I can feel it in my bones. And, and so his... Following his burial, uh, Dakin, his brother, had the body sent back to St. Louis. Uh, according to Dakin, it was a choice of Waynesburg, uh, Waynesville, Ohio, another place you might be familiar with, um, a very small town. Um, and, and Dakin thought he was doing the public a great service in uh, having his, his body uh, commemorated in a in a metropolis which was associated with with William. Whether that was in, in fact his intention is is unknown, but so the body was brought back to St. Louis and he's buried just minutes from here in Calvary Cemetery. My point in the book is that this is far more apposite than it it is simply ironic, which is what, how scholars have seen it for years and years. Isn't it terrible that this man was was buried in St. Louis. It was the last place he wanted to be. True. But it's also, in some ways, it epitomizes this long-standing, I won't say love affair, but this long-standing and deeply conflicted relationship with a city. Mm -hmm. And his being here is, in fact, quite appropriate in many ways. So you make a great case for that in this book. And I feel proud as a St. Louisan by just how much we influenced his work, which is, I think, the central argument of this book. Um, 
But there have been so many books about Tennessee Williams. What made you decide there was room for one more book and with this as the focus in particular? Pure accident. Um, a, a friend of mine from the Netherlands, Cecile Ferber, came to visit, uh, and uh, she stayed with us for about a month, and my wife took her to uh, the Missouri History Museum, and Cecile came back very disappointed and said, I couldn't find a book about Tennessee Williams and his relationship to St. Louis. And she had costumed my production of Glass Menagerie in the Netherlands. And she said, you should write it. And I, you know, I poo-pooed that suggestion at this point. I was doing other things, and I had no intention of. And but the more I thought about it, and the more I researched it, I realized that there had been a few essays on the subject, but nothing that systematically excavated Williams' relationship. And like anything else, I wrote the book to figure it out. I wrote the book to actually understand what the relationship was and to get beyond the sort of truism that yeah, he hated it here, didn't mm-hmm. he? And he did. But, of course, a lot of that hate had to do with his own family and his upbringing. And the sadness that was caused by his sister's uh, institutionalization, which he always felt he would follow. Williams is somebody who felt cursed. He felt, in some ways, damned. He felt that madness was just around the corner, that he would end up like his older sister, Rose. And in some ways, ironically enough, he did. So we have time for just one last question here, and this is, you write about the Tennessee Williams Festival St. Louis and how this has kind of righted the wrong of him being forgotten here in the way that he wanted to forget us. You did such a great job of, of finding his oldest plays and some of his most obscure plays. What obscure Williams play would you like to see that festival take on that it hasn't already done? Um, that's a really good question, and um, I think one of my favorites is Spring Storm. And because it's, although it is a play that's set in Mississippi, so it wouldn't necessarily do the job that the festival might want, but it is a play that is um, tremendously powerful and deals with the different aspects of William's own self. Um, There's a a failed artist, Arthur. There's a character that is based upon his sister, actually two characters, two females. So that would be the one play that I think it has, is almost never done and would warrant uh, resuscitation here in St. Louis. I appreciate that expert recommendation. Henry Chevet, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Sarah, for your enthusiasm. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com.